And please remain standing and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 17 as we read from God's holy word. Psalm chapter 17, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You would do well to give it your full attention. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Psalm 17 is a psalm or a prayer, a hymn of vindication and deliverance that is, of course, put to music or set to music. This is another psalm of David, and we we don't know the situation exactly of what David was facing, but it is very likely during the time when David was being persecuted by Saul and Uh, those who followed King Saul. Now, whether Saul and company are the specific enemies discussed in this psalm, or someone else, David knows that he is innocent of the accusations and charges that are brought against him. And so he turns to the highest court there is to the heavenly court where he knows the Lord will come to his aid since God in his own time always delivers the innocent from their oppression. 
And so David prays for vindication from these false charges and for deliverance from the oppression that he experiences. This is, uh, therefore, a a psalm of vindication and deliverance. Now, as always, the psalm ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. David was innocent of sin in this particular situation, but Christ was innocent of all sin, yet was falsely accused. He, that is Jesus Christ, is the righteous one who was oppressed, but delivered by God the Father and vindicated from all the charges lodged against him when he was raised on the third day from the grave. And so David in this psalm is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ in whom this psalm is ultimately fulfilled. Yet this psalm not only applies to Jesus Christ, but also to all of those who are united to him by spirit-wrought faith. And we will see that as we work our way uh, through this psalm and through this sermon. So let's take a look at Psalm 17. Now, as I've already mentioned, David asks for two basic things in this psalm. First, he petitions the Lord for vindication from the false charges that were lodged against him. But the second petition is for the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, who not only are falsely accusing him, but are also physically seeking his harm. Now, an interesting thing about this psalm, which is somewhat similar to other psalms as well, is that David doesn't just ask for what he wants. He makes a case for why God should answer his prayer, why God should answer his requests. Now, it's important to understand that he doesn't do this in order to convince God of why he should answer his prayer. That is not at all what prayer is about, attempting to twist God's arm into fulfilling all of our desires. And so what what is prayer for then? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. And that qualification is very helpful. It's an offering up of our desires to God, but for things agreeable to his will. And so prayer helps our desires to be in line with God's will, with God's own desires. And so as David prays, he's making a case, an argument, so to speak, for how his requests are in alignment with God's will. Apparently, uh, the The famous Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon used to encourage the members of his congregation to pray like this, to argue a case for their prayer requests. Again, not to convince God to answer those prayers, but to help the one praying to be in alignment with God's will. And doing this, I think, is something that we should try to practice in our prayers as well, because it will help us to think through our prayers in order to make sure that our prayer requests are indeed in alignment with God's will as he has revealed that will to us in his word. Okay, so his first request 
is that the Lord vindicate him from these false charges, whatever they were. And the first argument can basically be summed up in this. David is innocent of the charges. And since God is just, he should vindicate him from these false charges. And so as David appeals to God, the judge, in the heavenly courtroom, the line of argumentation is his innocence and God's justice. He begins with God's justice. He cries out to God, in fact, to hear a just cause. Or it could be translated, a righteous cause. And in verse 2, he asks God to behold what is right or what is upright. You see, as a judge, God is righteous or just. And so David knows that God will judge his case in this manner. In his line of argumentation, he is reminding God that he is the righteous judge. Not that God needs to be reminded. It's really a way for David to praise God for his attribute of righteousness or of being just. And based upon this fact, David then begins to express his innocence in this particular situation. He says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. You see, he's not coming to God as one who is guilty and then trying to deceive God into believe something, believing something that isn't true. His lips, at least in this case, are free from deceit. Therefore, he wants the Lord to vindicate him from these false charges against him. Now, how can it be proven that David is innocent? Well, he knows that God searches the hearts of men. He says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. That is, the Lord is present with him when his thoughts are the least restrained. Which is in the nighttime, when you're tired, when you have the least amount of of brain energy to think up lies and to twist the truth. When you're more willing to, to, to shoot straight with someone. The Lord has seen his heart even during these times. And he goes on, you have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. In other words, by your law, by the word of God's lips comes the law. And so by keeping fast to God's law, he has avoided the works and the ways of the violent. Psalm 119.11 expresses a similar thought when it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, David has maintained his innocence by making a diligent use of the primary means of grace, the word of God. And he concludes this portion of the psalm by stating, My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. Now really here, David is not only claiming innocence with regard to these false charges, but he's, he's claiming a basic innocence in life. Not that he is innocent of all sin, 
those who have read through the story of David, David in the scriptures knows that he was not uh, innocent of all sin. And uh, he confesses his own sin. He writes psalms confessing his sin. But David is basically claiming that he is one of God's righteous people. He walks in the paths of the Lord and not the path of the wicked. And it's for this reason that he appeals to God to hear him and to vindicate him. He is innocent and God is just. Therefore, he looks to God for his vindication. Now, his other line of argumentation is that the Lord is a loving and covenant-keeping God. He begins in verse 6, requesting God to incline his ear to him and to hear his words. And then in verse 7, he states, Wondrously show your steadfast love. So there are some significant Hebrew words that David uses here that The word there, wondrously, wondrously show, is used at times to speak of the works of God that are powerful and extraordinary. Sometimes that word is even used in the context of God's miraculous deeds. And so David wants the Lord, not necessarily to do a miracle, but very much related to that, he wants him to work his almighty power. To do that which only God can do. Hence it is translated as as wondrously show. Wondrously display. And what is it that David wants God to wondrously display? Well it is God's steadfast love. And this too is a significant Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. Which is difficult to put into English. William Tyndale translates it as loving kindness. Of course, uh, if you have the ESV, which I read from earlier, uh, it is steadfast love. So steadfast love or loving kindness. But it's more than just a steadfast love or a loving kindness. It's an unfailing love that God gives to those with whom he has covenanted. And so it's an unfailing covenant love. It's not a common love. It's not the love that God displays to all when he allows the rain to, shine, or rain to fall and the sun to shine for the common good of all. No, this is a specific love, an unfailing, steadfast, loving kindness that God only gives to those in the covenant of grace. It's a love that's displayed in mercy. And so David is appealing to God's ever-faithful covenant love and mercy, which he wants God to demonstrate in a powerful and extraordinary way, a way that God alone can demonstrate. Wondrously show your steadfast love. What a request. And so this new case that David is building... And his prayer is based upon God's special covenant love. And based upon this line of argumentation, David states his second petition, which is for God to deliver or save him from his enemies. 
The request for deliverance is specifically requested down in verse 13. But he begins to depict God as the Savior of his people already here in verse 7. Stating, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. See, those who look to the powerful right hand of the Lord find him as a refuge from their enemies, from their troubles. He is the savior of those who are oppressed. David's enemies are not only falsely accusing him, but they violently seek to physically harm him. And so in verse 8, he asks the Lord to keep him as the apple of his eye. That's the portion of the eye that is the pupil, presumably the most precious part of the eye, the part you would try to protect the most. And then another beautiful request, he says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. These are are beautiful ways to request the Lord's protection and deliverance. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Like a mother hen who protects her young from danger under her wings. Again, this is covenant language. In the song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 and 11, it is said that the Lord protected Israel like the apple of his eye and led her through the dangerous wilderness in the midst of enemies like a bird hovering over her young. You think about the wondrous covenant Steadfast love that God showed to Israel at the time of the Exodus. Protecting her, redeeming her from bondage in Egypt. Walking her through the wilderness with dangers all around. With enemies at her side. And the Lord graciously... And wondrously protected her all the way through. Here David is is now in need of this type of protection. For verse 9, he says the wicked seek to do him violence. There are deadly enemies who surround him on every side. And then in verse 10, he begins to describe the character of these deadly enemies. He says they close their hearts to pity. Literally, it says they are closed up in their own fat. Then he says, uh, well, literally, being closed up in their own fat simply means that they are unfeeling. They are not moved to any kind of pity because they are hard-hearted. Their hearts are calloused. They are unfeeling, closed up in their own fat, is what he means. And he says that that they speak arrogance with their mouths. Verse 11 says, They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. And David may be including others who are aligned with him, or or, or maybe he's just talking about himself here. 
Um, it can be translated either way. Uh, but uh, certainly being surrounded and sought after to be cast to the ground. The point is, is that his enemies are out to harm him and perhaps even to harm those who are, are true to David as well. He says in verse 12 that his enemy is like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion who is lurking in ambush. What a metaphor. You think of a lion who wants to shred his prey into pieces and to consume it. It ambushes its prey, stalks it. It's ready to spring into attack at any moment so that it might violently bring its prey to an end. So David petitions the Lord in regards to this, as we see in verse 13, to arise, confront his enemy, and subdue him. This language of arising is the language used of the Lord when Israel would go into battle. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God, would be carried on the front lines of Israel's soldiers. And they, would, they, they understood God to arise from his throne and to meet their enemies and subdue them, destroy them in battle. And so David not only wants the Lord to vindicate him from false charges, but he also wants the Lord to arise from his throne, from his seat of judgment, and, the second half of verse 12, by his sword deliver his soul from the wicked. So the Lord is, is, is not only depicted in the psalm as a judge, but also as a warrior. He's depicted as the divine warrior with sword in hand, ready to wage war against David's enemies. Now verse 14 is a little strange. He says, from men, right? In verse 13, he asks for a soul to be delivered. Verse 14, from men by your hand, O Lord. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Essentially what he is describing here is the prosperity of the wicked. Those who find their portion, their reward in this life. In this life the Lord fills their wombs with treasure. They find their satisfaction with all of their own prosperity and with all, all of their own children and in leaving them their inheritance. And so the Lord aids them in building up their wealth, their prosperity, for this is truly the desire of their hearts. And when they die, they leave it all to their children. This is their portion, their reward, what they seek after in this life. And David then contrasts those people with what he considers to be his own portion, with his own reward. He says in verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. See, David's reward doesn't come in this life as it does for the wicked. His prosperity is not in the creation, but in the creator. His portion is not anything in this world. His portion is the Lord himself. 
He says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When I awake is a metaphor for death, uh, awaking from death, or, or it's, a, it's a metaphor for the resurrection. And scripture often speaks of those who have died as having fallen asleep. But when he awakes, that is when he rises from the dead, he will be satisfied with beholding the face of God and being fully renewed in his likeness. He's speaking here with reference to what is often termed the beatific vision. The blessing of beholding God and being fashioned in his likeness. Okay, so this is David's two petitions. He argues from his innocence and from God's justice in order to petition God to vindicate him. And then he argues from God's faithful covenant love in order to petition God to deliver him from his wicked enemies. They only seek their portion in this life as opposed to him who seeks his portion in God alone. Now, as has already been mentioned, this psalm is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And having gone through 16 other psalms now, you you have repeatedly heard me discuss how Jesus fulfills these psalms. And so you probably know exactly where, where I'm going at this point. Yet, proclaiming Christ as the fulfillment never gets old, does it? Jesus, like David in the psalm, was falsely accused and needed to be vindicated from those false allegations. In fact, Matthew chapter 26 verse 59 says, The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. At this council, he was charged with blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God. But even before this, there were several times that the Jews picked up stones with which to stone him because he claimed to be the son of God, to be equal with God. And so Jesus, like David, had enemies that surrounded him and sought to take his life. Of course, those enemies eventually, in some sense, succeeded when they surrounded him in the Garden of Gethsemane arrested him, took him to trial, sentenced him to death, and crucified him. And so Jesus not only sought to be vindicated from false charge, but also to be delivered from his enemies. And not just his human enemies, but from the enemy of death itself. Now the Psalter being the hymn book of Jesus, we know that Jesus would have taken these psalms upon his lips. He would have prayed them, and his prayers for vindication and deliverance were ultimately answered simultaneously by his resurrection. Not only was his resurrection from the grave a deliverance from death, but it was also his vindication from the false charges of blasphemy. His resurrection demonstrated that he was indeed the Son of God. There are two passages 
that I would like you to take note of in this respect. First is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where Paul is discussing the gospel of God and says that it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and, listen, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so it was at his resurrection that he was declared to be the Son of God in power and thus vindicated from the charges of blasphemy. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, directly spells it out for us. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, he was manifested in the flesh, and here it is, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is a beautiful summary of the gospel. Christ came in the flesh. His death is, is assumed in this statement because it goes on to say that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Which, of course, is a reference to his resurrection, just as it was in Romans 1. And he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That last statement, I think, speaks to the fulfillment also of the end of Psalm 17. When Christ awoke, that is, from the grave, and ascended into heaven, he beheld God the Father's face in righteousness and was satisfied with his likeness. And so we see then how this psalm of David spoke of and prophesied of Christ. And just as we've done with the other psalms, we also need to see how this psalm applies to us. To those of us who are united to Christ by faith. And its application to us is really quite extensive First, it is a, a psalm that we can pray if we are ever falsely accused and or are oppressed by others. And sometimes those accusations and, and oppression may, may come from those within the church. David's false accusations and oppression in this psalm likely came from King Saul, who was part of the covenant people. And certainly Jesus himself was falsely accused by the covenant people of God. And so sometimes even those who are part of the covenant can set themselves against us as our enemies. But also false charges and oppression can certainly come from those outside of the covenant people as well. Such as ultimately from the devil himself and all unbelievers whom the devil uses to slander and to persecute us. You think about David's claim that his enemy was like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Well, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking 
someone to devour. And when we sing or, or pray these songs, we need to be thinking in this manner. Thinking of our ultimate enemy, Satan, who is the accuser of the brothers. And think about the, the, the hymn we sang as our assurance of pardon. When Satan tempts me to despair and speaks of my guilt within. Right? He, he, wants, to accuse, he wants you to feel accused and that you are not. And have not been made one of the righteous of God. And certainly we are not deserving of such a thing. But in Christ we have been declared righteous. We've been justified. We've been vindicated. Satan is our enemy. And he seeks our harm. More than we even know. And so we pray this psalm for protection from the devil. Now, we can't pray this psalm as if we were innocent of all the charges that could ever be lodged against us. Again, only Jesus could pray this psalm without qualification. But we can pray this psalm like David as one who has been made righteous by the grace of God. David, together with all those who believe in the Messiah, are made righteous only by the blood of Jesus Christ. David still awaited the accomplished redemption of Christ, but he could pray as a righteous man because he believed in Christ who would come to suffer for the forgiveness of his sins. And so David prayed as a righteous man for vindication and and deliverance. James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16 of his epistle that the prayers of a righteous man have much power. Clearly, it's not speaking of those who are righteous in and of themselves, in which case no prayer would be heard by God. But David prayed, and God answered his prayers because he was righteous in Christ. And so too will God answer our prayers for vindication and deliverance from our enemies, behind whom is Satan and his legion of demons. And who is it? That will deliver and vindicate us from the assaults of the devil and his armies. It is Jesus. The Christ. The Son of God. Just as David prayed for God to arise from his throne to confront and subdue his enemies. So Christ when he returns will arise from his throne where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he will come to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 speaks of the return of Christ. Stating, then I saw heaven opened and behold... A white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And listen. In righteousness. Because he is righteous. He is just. In righteousness he judges. And makes war. There it is. He is the judge. And he makes war. He judges the wicked and vindicates the righteous. And he makes war as the divine warrior. At that time, beloved, when Christ returns, we will behold the face of God. 
We will be awakened from the grave. That is those who have fallen asleep. And we will all have resurrection bodies made in his likeness. Our resurrection will be the final phase even of our vindication from our enemies. Right now the unbelieving world who is led by Satan persecutes the righteous. They claim that we are liars, that we are the true oppressors of people, that we hold humanity back. All sorts of charges they lodge against those who hold the name Christian. Satan, of course, is the ultimate accuser. But if by faith, beloved, you are in Christ, then you have already been justified. You have already been vindicated of all charges. And that vindication will be openly seen by all when you are raised from the grave and satisfied with resurrection bodies with his likeness. In opposition to this, however, will be those who have rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior. For he will come to judge and make war. And the wicked who have prospered in this life will find a great reversal of fortunes. It's like the parable that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man. In the parable, both men died. Lazarus, who was a poor man, covered in sores, and who desired to eat the scraps from the rich man's table. When he died, angels carried him to Abraham's side. On the other hand, when the rich man died, he found himself in torment in Hades. You see, his reward was only in this life. In his riches. And his worldly goods. But Lazarus, like all true believers, will find their ultimate reward in God. And they will be raised in his likeness and will be eternally satisfied. Come, Lord Jesus, and bring that day quickly. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ, the judge and divine warrior. For you have determined a day in which he will judge all. Those who are united to him by faith will pass through that judgment. For they will be declared not guilty, bearing the righteousness of Christ. But those who do not, O Lord, we know, as you have told us, they will receive eternal condemnation forevermore. May we be those who warn others of such a fate. May we love our enemies and pray for them and share the gospel with them.
that they too might turn to Christ. But also, like David, we do pray that you would destroy our enemies. We know for certain that Satan and all his demons are our enemies. Beyond that, we don't know your hidden counsels and whom you will call to yourself and who uh, you have passed over and will leave uh, to their destruction. But we do pray, O oh God, that you would vindicate us, not because we are sinless, but because we are in Christ who was. And we pray that you will deliver us, even from the final enemy, which is death. And we look forward to the day of our resurrection. And we will dwell with you forever. And we lift these things up in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.